Hello, this is uh, Heavyweight. Uh, we got DJ Ross One just had a show at the Heavyweight you- Gallery here in Los Angeles. Uh, nice to have you, Ross. Thanks for having me. So, Ross, I just want to get into a little bit of a background, how we came about to uh, that lead- led up to your show. So uh, why don't you give us a little uh, background on yourself? You were born in Cincinnati? Born and raised in Cincinnati. Um, I was there until I moved away for college where I went to upstate New York to RIT for photo school. And then I went to graduate school in um, New York City and ended up basically living in New York City since then with a little uh, gap where I lived in Miami for a while. My DJ career kind of took me to a few different cities and now I'm in L.A. Well, it's great to have you in LA. So, uh, so how did you get into the whole, like being a DJ? Like I know you, when you were younger, you used to work at a record store. Well, I first got into it really, it's kind of like a generic story, but I saw the movie juice, just thought it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen and, and asked for a turntable and a mixer for my 16th birthday. And my parents were nice enough to get me a Gemini turntable and a big Classic. 19 inch Gemini mixer and um, kind of started there. And now, was your family into music and art? My, my mom is a painter. My parents owned a, like a Herman Miller dealership, basically. So we were always, art and design were always a part of our house. And, and you know, my, my dad was a, is a great drawer and kind of architecture type background. So they were very so, supportive of your uh, getting into music. Yeah, they always were excited that, you know, I would go to art school. I mean, to them, I think being an artist was the same as, you know, being a doctor or getting any other So they job. were proud. So, yeah, I think so. I think they were proud when I decided to go to photo school and um, fully supported me, which is pretty crazy. You know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I'd fully support my kid going yeah. to photo school in, the, in this day and age. But um, and they, they, were, they always... Oh. I bet in Cincinnati, there's a lot of good records, right? Um, there are, there's actually, well, the, you got, you have Bootsy Collins, Bootsy Collins. You have King records. Yeah. LA Reed's originally from Cincinnati. Wow. But I mean, Ohio has a lot of yeah. really great soul funk artists came out of Ohio. Um, but, but there, there weren't that many record stores, but there was some good digging opportunities. And there was one really good record store called everybody's that I used to go to pretty religiously. And back then it was, this was right before the internet started popping. So yeah. you could really find great records. And then when I went to college, I pretty much worked at record stores. Full-time. And were you taking photos? Like how did, how did you applying for college and photography when you're already like, um, kind of doing music? Yeah, it was again, lucky enough that my high school, I went to public school and it just had a photo program. You know, I had like a kind of basic photography class. So and, you were actually like shaking the tank. Yeah. Shaking the tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I was working for a local photographer also, and he was doing everything from fine art photography to weddings. And I was basically his printer. So I pretty much just lived between the record store and the dark room, uh, learning that stuff. And then, uh, RIT was, was kind of considered one of the better photo schools in the country. So I went there and it was really technical and really darkroom heavy. And again, this was just before the internet and, and just before digital cameras were super readily accessible. They were yeah. more like point and shoot digital at that yeah. point. So this was in the late nineties, 98. It was really exciting. It was a really exciting time to. And then when you were taking photos, you're pushing up the, you know, to 15, 1600 to get that blue note effect to get like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause all like, you know, your, your images were like, yeah, it was just classic. A, album. It was really different. Everything took a lot longer, you know, and everything yeah. was, um, 
required a lot more effort, especially when it came to collecting or sort of being good at something. You just really had to put in a lot of time, which now you still have to put in time to be good at something, but kind of getting from step one to step whatever, six out of 10 probably takes a 10th of the time. Well, yeah. And I can go who sampled who. Yeah. Well, even, even with that, just, I've just been putting my records on Discogs kind of like cataloging everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm just amazed at these records that were like grails to me as a kid that I would have never even considered being able to find. And, you know, now I can look them up and they're like, you know, $35, (laughs) $30. At the time it was like this thing, I was going to have to go to New York. I was going to have to be digging at the record fairs and like with a chance to ever find this record. And because back then you'd have to like even discover what it was to even before you could even find it. So you had to like, you know, now you can hear something and within two minutes of first time you've ever heard it, you can like get into the root of it. I remember going to the record store and taking like the ultimate breaks and beats and all those kind of breakbeat comps and looking at the back. And a lot of times, sometimes they would list the artist and the song Mm -hmm. and sometimes there's the song, but I would just be in there like, like the biggest herb with like a notepad and just write down (laughs) every song title and just, you know, make it my want list. You know what I mean? And, And just so it was like in my brain when I was out digging to look for certain artists, certain titles it was the best feeling. And, you know, those records were like, they would just make your year find some of those. And so is that when your collector's bug kind of first started? Collecting? Yeah. My, my, I mean, my mom is from Minnesota and Minnesota. collecting is kind of in Ben and my family's blood for a long time. In, in Minnesota, I think it's just kind of a way of life. You collect duck decoys and fish decoys and pottery and stuff like that. It's just yeah. kind of, when I was a kid, there was antique stores everywhere. And every time we'd go up, we'd stop it. Luckily, I mean, all that stuff was so cool. So even growing up in Ohio, we always had all that Minnesotan stuff. I remember the greatest thing when I was a kid was that my parents, their office had a Xerox machine. I could Xerox all the Nike ads out of the Sports Illustrated. I could Xerox any rap article and I could kind of, it was almost like I didn't want to mess with it in the magazine. I wanted to keep that intact, but I wanted to have this imagery. So I'd be like Xeroxing old Nike ads and, and doing them in pieces and then taping it all together and then coloring it by hand and then putting it on my wall because it was just being a nerd and and do it. You know, you were so into this stuff and your access was so limited that that was, that was your option, you know, constantly filling in the blanks with just your imagination. And well, that's what I feel like when we were younger, it was also, you would kind of get bits of information, but you get like A and B and C and you'd have like one, you know, rough picture of, 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 a thing in New York or, or, or picture of LA or wherever it was. And then you kind of like create the narrative around that image, you yeah. know, cause you actually yeah. didn't know what it was. And you create your personal style based on that yeah. too, especially as a kid. It was like you were, I was literally dressing based on a photo I saw of the Beastie Boys, you know I mean? Yeah. And I would model my whole, my whole lifestyle yeah. <laughs> around these pictures because that's all I had. You know I mean? That was yeah. like the, the, no, they were, thing. I mean, it was Beasties crazy. were so influential to I, so I many hate people. sounding like the old days before yeah. the internet, but I really think I've come to the conclusion that human civilization is basically fire wheel internet at this point. <laughs> I think that the change, the, the fact that we were sort of the, of the age where we, we were coming to age while the internet was being invented, basically, puts us in this unique position where we kind of straddled both of the worlds. The, the, the difference is the time you have to spend accessing the information is different. It's so instant. 
I remember my parents taking me to a Miro show when I was a kid mm-hmm. and just going to that show and having to remember it. I mean, he became my favorite painter for yeah. probably 10 years. The impact that just one art show could have on you then just because that was all you had, you know, and then we would come to New York and, and go to museums and things like that. And, and those little experiences had such a lasting impression. But I do think that you always kind of want to also have that physical experience. Definitely. Like music and art. Well, things are just merchandised very different now also. So when things are popular, there's definitely going to be a t-shirt or a little model yeah. or, a, or something you can buy, you know, that you can hold on to with it, which wasn't so much the case. So let's go back to you. Yep. So then were you DJing in, in Cincinnati? No, I didn't. I was just messing around in my room, you know, trying to scratch. And, um, I was really into, you know, underground hip hop and, and mm-hmm. So and who you were know, you listening to at this time? My, my, when I was really young, it was a lot of public enemy boogie down productions, um, like X clan mm-hmm. and like all this digital underground. It was, it was mm-hmm. like groups. I've realized now that it's kind of groups that, that had almost like a character in them. You know, you had your flavor yeah. flavor, or your Humpty hump. Cause I was a kid, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and yeah. that's what drew me in or, or like the crazy, the crazy imagery of like an X clan or something drew me in and subliminally then all this stuff is getting into my head and it's becoming, you know, what I'm interested in, mm-hmm. interested in. And KRS one, I think had such a powerful voice at the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I was like 15, 14, 15, I found out about native tongues and that yeah. was pretty much it. That was like, yeah. and then I got into more West coast, but it was like souls of mischief. And well, for me, I was in the burbs in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I was an art kid in high school and high school that wasn't, but then you, you find the beastie boys and you find the native tongues and you're instantly you're, you see your access point to this world. Yeah. It's kind of like, Oh, a kid like me can kind of be really into this hip hop thing. Yeah. You know, like I, I have a way in through these guys and I mean, everything about it from the, from the way they made beats and the samples they were using yeah. and I was like, these are my guys. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'll go out and buy a pair of gazelles and <laughs> yeah. they were like, they were almost like big brothers. Yeah. You didn't, I didn't have a big brother and these were like the, the cool guys to look up to. And then the fact that they were friends with like Q-Tip and they had Bismarck yeah. Key on their records yeah. and all this stuff. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm, this is it. And then, um, and then you get into De La Soul and Jungle Brothers and, you know, Tribe was obviously like my f- favorite group of all time. So, so it, it was, it was and, but these were artists who you knew from music videos, you knew from magazines, source, rap pages, mm-hmm. you know, MTV raps. And that was it. The access was so limited. And that's kind of where like the t-shirt thing started, you know? Yeah. And that's where like just wanting any piece of merch, wanting anything you and could have. So, um, so then you applied art school, you got in. And then, so then when, you, where were you living in New York when you got there? Well, I went to Rochester, which is like kind of like a tundra up there, you know, it's yeah. nice for like three months in the summer and then the rest of the year it's just freezing and gray and kind of just miserable. And RIT is this like kind of Bauhaus mm-hmm. design brick school mm-hmm. and called yeah. brick city. And, and you know, if you really like design and architecture, maybe you find some charm in yeah. it, you find, not charm, yeah. but you can appreciate it. Yeah. But for, for most anybody who's there every day, it's just like kind of misery, kind you of know, and like brutalist a little bit. There's just, it was just cold. So, yeah. you know, you learned to take photos and you were in the dark room all day and, um, you know, you got out the four by five and learned the zone system. And, and I was shooting, I was always a street shooter. So at that time I was shooting on like a little Canonette. I didn't have enough money for the cameras I wanted, um, like a Leica or anything like that. So I kept it cheap and I was, you know, Olympus styluses, point and shoots. Key. 
my first camera was a Pentax like P30 or something, which is a little better than a K1000. But uh, it was that level. You yeah. Know? K1, it, they wanted you to be adjusting your shutter speed and your aperture. And yeah. there was, you know, your light meter was pretty rudimentary. It, yeah. It wasn't auto in camera. Yeah. And that was the whole point because they wanted you to learn you know, how cameras worked and how to take a good photo, which I, I still use that to this day. You know and I mean? I still, you know, when I'm out shooting photos, I'm constantly kind of thinking in that old school way of it. Yeah. How but, to push it. Yeah. But my favorite photographers at the time were, you know, a lot of street shooters, Robert Frank, uh, Gary Winogrand. I got it really. And as soon as I learned about a lot of Japanese photographers, I got super into Daito Moriyama and Fukase and some of those guys, but it, it was, um, I knew right away, you know, what style of photography I was into. But you were still, so you were doing your photography, going full-time school. Yep. But you were also... Working at the record stores. Working at the record stores. Yep. And we threw this party at a bar called The Bug Jar in Rochester. It sort of became like a really popping party. We would do it like once a month. And we were playing like a mix of hip hop and funk and soul and dance music and kind of everything. And it just became a local party. And that was kind of... You'd be playing breaks and hip hop or was it like, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I loved, I was collecting breaks. So I was playing a lot of breaks and kind of just classic funk and soul stuff. Mm -hmm. And then classic hip hop at the time, you know, it wasn't so classic. It was still relatively new. Um, and that was pretty much all through college. And then when I moved to New York city, I started picking up, I was not, I wasn't making a living off it. I was making basically spending money off of DJing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was working at the record store, which was not for money either. That was pretty much for trade credit. Yeah. So, but my cost of living in Rochester was like, nothing. you know, <laughs> it was yeah. insanely cheap. So, um, you know, you could just get by and be a scrub and live yeah. in a house with six of your friends and, yeah. and, you know, do, do everything you wanted to do every day, basically. Then we came to New York and I kind of kept the same lifestyle. Yeah. No, just, art school is the best. Art school is the best. <laughs> it is. I mean, Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. Except for you can, yeah, come out with Except for the nothing. debt. And, and, and uh, yeah. yeah. And it, you have to make the most of it because you can definitely go to art school for six years and do absolutely nothing. Well, especially like, yeah, you come out with all this education on it, you know, and then, but at the same time, it, things change. And then, and then you probably at some point you probably had to go like, am I going to be a commercial photographer? Am I going to try and be a fine art photographer? Am I going to try and like, yeah. what avenue am I going to go? Like, are you still... Were you still in the photography? Like, were you, were there aspirations of working in yeah. fine art? And yeah, I was working for photographers. I was working for one of my favorite, I was working for Robert Frank, who I'd met, wow. which was like a huge, huge thing for me. And yeah. um, I was working for a gallery called Pace McGill, working mm -hmm. on archives. So I was very much in the world. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized at that time, this was in the early 2000s, photography had moved away very far away from my style of photography, which was like small books, black and white. Yeah. And it was into these, giant Gursky and Struth and, and yeah. kind of like this, it was at the time it was like this Yale school of photography, mm -hmm. which I, I wasn't mad at. It was cool, but it was just very far from what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, like Crudson and these guys. Yeah. And so I kind of realized I wasn't going to be able to make a living, nor did I really want to make a living yeah. doing this stuff. Your passions um, were changing to me. Yeah. Well, I was still passionate about photography, but I, it just became clear, like this isn't, it's not going to work mm -hmm. as a job unless I bend so far to start doing editorial or whatever, that kind of work. And at the same time, luckily DJing was really picking up and I was picking up more local bars and small clubs in the city. I was just grinding away at that, you know, three, four, five nights a week, whatever it was, you know, take any job kind of thing. And someone uh, saw me and really liked me and introduced me to 
his friend from Miami and some opportunities broke open there. And I actually ended up moving to Miami a few years later just to have like some full-time residencies. And that's when I kind of started actually making some dough. Yeah. DJing. You know, you were just like a blue collar DJ, you know, yeah. you just went to work, you did six hours, 11 to four. And, you know, there was a community of us back then, you know, like Rock Con was around and um, he was doing some better clubs than I was at that time. Ellie Escobar was already kind of a fixture. Um, you had Stretch and Riz and Eric LePoe and guys like that who like I would go and watch who were doing the bigger clubs that I aspired to DJ yeah. at and kind of take notes. Mark Ronson had been around. And were you playing? Were you playing vinyl? Were you playing? It was all vinyl. Yeah, yeah. it was all vinyl until until Final Scratch and Serato showed up, which was you know yeah. in the early two thousands, and then yeah. that transition happened. But before that, it was all. Yeah, I remember Blue Gems being the first one with. Uh... Yeah, I mean Gems was obviously a big part of that scene back then. It was. A, it was. A, yeah, that transition too. Even that transition goes back to the internet thing, like switching from vinyl to mm-hmm. to digital DJing. Yeah, it just change the whole game. I mean, it's, it'll never be the same. Well, uh, yeah, it was good for your back. It was good for everything. <laughs> you know, the only thing it wasn't good for is that it allowed certain people who kind of had no business DJing to be, to be able to DJ. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you were able to get adequate as a DJ so quickly mm-hmm. that kind of people who didn't really, most of the DJs I go and I hear and I think are great mixers or, or I think they have a really great flow of their night. This is changing, you know, as times mm-hmm. change, but most of them started out on vinyl and kind of had that mentality of counting bars. And now that, now the music's kind of taken over from the art. Yeah. Now it's become my more of a livelihood. Bring it a little bit forward. So were you, you were collecting t-shirts and you just started, you still had a bit of a, uh, a collector's mentality and like how to, and you started collecting boom boxes too. I collected, well, boom boxes were one of those, another one of those like iconic things that I would see as a kid in magazines and on TV, but mm-hmm. I would never see them in real life. They yeah. did not exist. I was too late for them to be around. Yeah. And even at like the pawn shops and, and kind of old electronic stores, you know, in downtown Cincinnati, they just didn't have them. So it was always one of those things where it was like and this. You see those classic Jamal Shabazz photos. and Pinnacle and, item of hip hop that yeah. you could not find one of them. Yeah. And so it just led you to every day, you know, you draw them, <laughs> you'd, yeah. you'd want them, yeah. you'd imagine, you know, like yeah. finding one on the street or finding one while I was ma- digging you, for records. You got it would make mixtapes. Would you like make yeah. mixtapes for girlfriends and Well, I was making, you, you'd make mixtapes of, of new stuff. And it was, that was basically just practicing was yeah. making mixtapes, go back and listen to your mixes and, you know, improve or whatever. And I, I was doing a lot of break beat stuff back then. So yeah, so as soon as the the uh, the boomboxes, as soon as kind of eBay came around there, like right around probably oh one oh two, that was my first thought was like maybe I'll be able to find a radio finally. Yeah. And back then they were you know they didn't turn up very often, but they were cheap you really? know when they did. So as they'd turn up, I would just pick them up you know if the price was right and and I needed one. And it went from having like, you know, three to having 10 to having 20. And, uh, Where were you keeping these it things? was a real problem, you know, it, <laughs> on top of that, the records were the real collection, yeah. you know, which was just the, all the walls of the bedroom. Yeah. And then, and at the same time, you know, the t-shirts weren't as, weren't as big of a problem at that time because it was just my clothes. You yeah. Know what I mean, so, uh, it, it hadn't spiraled out of control, but. I mean, the radios have always been a problem. And one of the reasons why I did this show is because I I recently moved them all and it was a traumatic experience, you know? And it was like, what, 
in the fuck am I going to do with these things? Well, because just aesthetically, they're so amazing. And when you came by and you were like showing me these radios and I was thinking like, oh, Rob Swift, Soulful Fruit, like all these crazy tapes I used to like love. And then you would have your boombox and you play it until yeah. like it all got distorted and stuff. And it's, then- it's the opposite of what product design now is, yeah. which is like, what's the simplest, smallest way I can do this? Theirs is like, what's the biggest way I can fit the most amount of buttons yeah. and the most features? <laughs> Like you know, how can the, we do that and make it like look Like that good. one with the sub, that one's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just great. And and as I was going through and kind of playing, well, we had the move and mm-hmm. and my wife, who was just like, she, she's just kind of shaking her head because they've all been kind of in stored away. So when they're all out and you have to yeah. kind of accept how much space they take up and <laughs> she's what like, it what is. what are you doing with all these? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I should sell them. And even she's like, well, they're so great. Like, yeah. it doesn't make sense to just sell them after you've worked so hard to collect them. So I started, I've always kind of thought it would be cool to do a wall. And then as I started listening to music through them and, and playing more of more than one at once, I was like, oh, this is really a special experience. Well, even the idea of like making it into like a pirate radio station per se. And even that is like that pirate radio of like just of kind of creating your own environment. And it was cool because it was like, is an art piece. It is an art piece. Even like, even when you brought in all those manuals, the level of detail and stuff like that is like, it's crazy. Yep. Definitely has that like throwback to like a little bit of like analog distortion and and when they're all playing like in sync and you're working like the mad scientist on them like trying to keep everything in tune and like you know <laughs> they, they just like, fall out of tune on their own especially yeah. with I think with a kind of a pirate radio station because the signal is just not quite there like it would be for mm-hmm. a bigger radio station so it's crazy how they just constantly get fuzzy and fall out but it's it's part of what makes them great I think that little fuzz and and having to hit just the right spot on the tuning dial to hear the show. I think I remember seeing cool Keith talk about that in the stretch and Bob doc about yeah. like it being like this full experience of having to, you know, gently turn the, uh, the tuning knob and just try to till you finally get that frequency. It's also, it's crazy. I feel like, and just for even you coming out here to LA, you know, he was in the whole downtown New York scene and mm-hmm. it's crazy now. Cause now a lot of people are out here. Yeah. I mean, New York is still great it still has its charm and it's still probably the center of the universe you know mm-hmm. what i mean but for creative people it's become just prohibitively expensive and the way that small business has been kind of decimated you know just those cool shops specialty stores the rent is too high but yeah now it's just too expensive to take a risk yeah and it's the same with nightclub it's why you don't see new nightclubs taking up no one's gonna. No one's willing to take that huge of a loss on the chance of doing something cool, you know. And it's still happening out in Brooklyn, you know. If you get further out now, even where I live in Greenpoint, is just it's, well, I mean, it's, it's not it's, a place where a regular working person can live. Or, or if you're an artist or a painter, or not even a starving artist, if you're like doing okay, you're gonna have a tough time just paying rent. I, I was interesting when I was reading yesterday a bit like the whole funk balls. I remember like oh the the ballet funk stuff. The ballet funk that's still going on down there. I used to go to Brazil every year and just for digging for records and and DJing and you know trying to hear all that all the new funk music and and you know buying street CDs and stuff like that mm-hmm. and just bringing it back because we did a party in Miami that was Brazilian based and we played a lot of ballet funk and that party's even still going now Favela Beach yeah um, but. Uh, it's funny when your life is pop culture because you have to be careful because pop is also kind of always eating itself, right? That's the yeah. nature of the beast. Is it's you like, got to change. You can't fight you have, it. You can't fight it. Yeah, you can't but, fight the young, the kids either. Yeah, you know you may 
usually, you know, when something new comes out, I think our first reaction is to be a little apprehensive if it's not like amazing. If it's even just not great, we're kind of like, that sucks, man. Yeah. These kids don't know what they're doing. You have to be willing to to be open to it yeah. and because it's going to take over. It's not our choice. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's good. Thank God for that yeah. because otherwise things would, would stay stale. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, it takes, it maybe takes a little bit longer for, for us to warm up. I try to be really open to anything new, especially yeah. because I'm in the clubs and yeah, I, you know, I don't, you keep I don't, it fresh for yourself I don't too. dictate what, um, you know, kids in the clubs are listening to, they yeah. dictate it, you know, yeah. they don't need me anymore. They can, they can stream music all day. I don't, I'm not breaking records for them. Kids today are, are really savvy and they know all the words to nineties R and B and early two mm thousands -hmm. R and B. The thing I've learned about this generation, which I find amazing is when I'm in the club, I look out and all these kids, they really do know every word to every song. It's something that's changed. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think it's the way that kids take information now but they're all like little savants when it comes to lyrics. And I think there's a difference for mm. me. I never even like really cared about lyrics. You know, yeah. there were songs where I knew, you, you know, you, you weren't they, in the they, cipher. They had a great, cipher? they had a great, great lines or great lyrics. And I would sing along, but for me, yeah. I was always so beat oriented. Yeah. And now the beats are kind of just, you know, they're a little bit more cookie cutter yeah. and these kids listen to the words and, and they recite it back. And I'm, you know, I think it's, I think it's cool. There's definitely some sort of a change. And I think it's in the way that, that they interpret information. All the time it took to dig for those records and the 10,000 mm -hmm. hours you put in at the record store and, and mm -hmm. reading liner notes. But these kids can go online and listen to a hundred new songs a day and filter through it and kind of decide what they like and make playlists and, and consume it and then kind of leave it behind in a way that I'm incapable of. It's, well, it's completely overwhelming for me. And I, I need them to sort of be like, oh, this shit is dope, you know, and then you sort of see if it stands the test of time. But you have to listen to them because they, they know how to, they're creating it and they know how to interpret it. It's good and bad, you know? I mean, probably the, the quality isn't as lasting, but that's, that's not what they know. They're used to instant gratification and mm. why are they going to spend two years making an album when they can make five albums and go on three tours and yeah. make dough? You know what I mean? And, yeah. and there's still classic albums being made. Oh, there you know, is so. for sure. 100%. I'm always impressed. I'm always impressed. And the thing about music and art is you can spend your whole life in it and not even touch, like go, you know, 10 feet deep. It's crazy how, how, how much, how much content, is out there, how much is out there. Yeah. But like, how do you feel about like, you know, you want a longevity in music. That's the thing too, is we're living longer than ever. I think you can have a long life with music and art. Yeah. I mean, that's all about, there's a big difference between making money and, and yeah. having a career and, and being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically being true to yourself uh -huh. and being true to what you like and really investing in something and being passionate about it. That's a lot different than just going out there and making a lot of money by yeah. like churning out records that don't really mean anything to you or anybody. I think it's important to constantly get those creative juices going and to constantly be challenging yourself a bit, just making something, you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, whatever it is you're into, just, do something with it. It same thing happened with rap teas. There was no reason to make that book, you know, other than it was just yeah. like, let's just do it. Let's there's this collection sitting around. It's something I'm, I'm actually passionate about. I actually care about. I don't care about making money off of it. No, but it's nice to have a important. legacy project too. You know, that's something you can. Yeah. There's also that. And, and it sort of started this, um, kind of craze among, you know, these kid 
collectors who yeah. now are, have gone nuts for rap tees and, and vintage Oh, it's crazy. I mean, going down around two and stuff, like the amount of money that those shirts sell for, like three, four, five hundred dollars is Yeah, like, more. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like if you could go back in time control. and just grab everything into your room and then come back, you'd be like. <laughs> the amount of those bootlegs I just passed on because I just didn't really like them. I was, yeah. I was looking for East Coast yeah. and. and I didn't need every Tupac yeah. $30 bootleg yeah. I was seeing. I should have just stockpiled them because be, yeah, be on vacation right like, now. Yeah, that's crazy. Biggie always would have bought, you know? I mean, yeah. those shirts are just rare and they don't turn up that much. But but yeah, doing a project like that, I think it's I think it's different when you, you don't need it for your livelihood, when you're just doing it just to do something cool and just to get the wheels turning. Well, I also feel know? like, the, I mean, you're from cincinnati ohio middle america and like i not to get into politics too much and stuff but like it's not overtly political to me to do art shows or things bringing together or like you know but it yeah kind of is it's like community it's community you know i mean it's tough because you're in, in la or in new york you're so used to just being around diversity and being around everybody and the things that are made issues sort of now in politics just aren't really issues you know you just yeah. you're all just trying to get by and pay yeah. rent and, and have yeah. fun and yeah. do your thing and live your life. And it's not to say that there isn't racism in big cities, but it's kind of just like, it's not like get out of here. It's like, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just all coexisting and we're, yeah. you know, it's just like regular differences between people. Yeah. I mean, obviously the event was going to be, you know, multi-age, multicultural, diverse and fun and about music, but it's always great to have. I'm really optimistic for for kids today, for, for young kids, you know, the millennials, I don't know so much about, you know, I'm not exactly sure what, what their, uh, end game is going to yeah. be here, but yeah. I think that this generation who's growing up, whose kids, who's seeing this kind of Trump era and is, I mean, it's it, different they, too. the dream of owning a house, things like this are kind of changing. Yeah. You know? It's a crazy time, you know, I mean, the American dream is going to change, yeah. but I think as these, as kids who are young now, I think the internet will not be this bright, shiny object anymore. I think people are going to learn how to make it a part of their lives where it's not, I, I just think it's going to have to turn into something that's more, I don't want to say useful, but something that you live with yeah. and not, you're not stuck in like it feels like you are kind of now certainly this president is going to take us to our darkest moment. It's a challenge. To, I think it's a really just a challenging, it's really like confronting, a, like really now it's like a head on kind of thing. It's like, you have to confront those issues. Well, being from Ohio, I mean, I got really down, you know, like yeah. this, this has brought me really down because I, I had more faith in Americans, you know, yeah. I didn't think people were so overtly racist yeah. and so willing to accept such a, terrible person with no redeeming qualities in the name of, I'm not even sure either a tax cut or racism. I I still can't quite figure it out, but it's just so, so depressing to, to think that about, I think it's just fear. I think it's just fear. It's like insecurity of the future. It's the insecurity of change is definitely this like this Norman Rockwell, whatever, like idyllic past of that never really was anyways, you know? So it's like, Anyways, it's a weird time, but yeah, you don't want to dwell on it because you end up getting bummed. And yeah. little projects like this have been a good distraction. No, and it's great. And it's know. great to introduce, like, it's funny because like a lot of the, you know, younger kids come in the show is like, they didn't even really see the boombox before. Yeah, they never seen one in real life. <laughs> yeah. It's like a prop, you know, <laughs> almost like a sculptural music sound mm-hmm. system. I, you know, it looks great. Come check it out. Take a picture in front of it. All right. Well, I, I want to leave on since you are a connoisseur. I just want to leave on a couple like top fives. Okay. 
start with the uh, top five of your most, you know, favorite or influential DJs. DJs. Uh, I got to put Kid Capri, mm-hmm. Riz, um, Stretch. These are just people who are influential to me, who I've yeah. seen DJ, who I've been like, who have exactly. changed the way that I DJ. Um, I mean, some of my friends and peers, Rockcon, Crooked, Ellie, that's a pretty good list. That might be six, but yeah, you know, that I'm, is I'm a always really good inspired list. by just like good DJing, thoughtful, a thoughtful way of putting music together. And there's no coincidence that, you know, those are all New York guys. And, yeah. and I've always loved like New York style of DJing. Like it's a whole different, I mean, there's a lot of super talented DJs out here. I'm, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm, I'm just, I think that New York style of, yeah. it's not mashup. It was just the way that nights were structured, you know, at least four or five genres of music throughout the night. And it all was kind of this seamless experience, which it didn't need to change because even that was getting a little stale, but yeah. that'll forever be my favorite kind of DJing. You know, you can't beat that. Classic. Um, um, top five rap albums. I mean, that's impossible. It's probably Midnight Marauders, maybe Low End Theory. Mm-hmm. There's a Beasties album in there mm-hmm. for me, which is probably Check Your Head. Um, Illmatic, obviously. Um, it starts getting a little bit cookie cutter, but uh, Nation of Millions is definitely up there. Yeah. Um Ready to Die, I think, is kind of a perfect album. Mm-hmm. I think it, it is as good as Illmatic. Um, I mean, a ton of Jay-Z blueprint, yeah. you know? I mean, that's in there for me. I don't know if top five, but it's in, it's up there. And then let's say influential artists, fine artists, photographers. Uh, Robert Frank first. Dino Moriyama is two. Um, Got any painters in there? I mean, I like a lot of painters in terms of influencing me. I have like some uh, Jeanette Hayes paintings on my wall, you know, like stuff where it's kind of like, I feel like more my peer group, but I have really good photographs on my wall because I worked for photographers and built those relationships. And I always said like, cool people don't spend like a million dollars on a painting. You know what I mean? Cool people like are friends with the artist and have artwork on their walls of their friends, you know? And, and, uh, but, uh, for painters, Anytime you go to Paris or something and you go and see kind of the legends, you know, you see, mm-hmm. uh, go see a Picasso show mm-hmm. or go see Matisse or go see Van yeah. Gogh. Yeah. It just blows your mind. Yeah, it, you that under- will you send understand me, why they're the best. it sends me into a spiral because I'm like, okay, what's the equivalent now? Where's the, obviously there's no Leonardo da Vinci probably since. Yeah. But like wh- who, yeah. what, what is it? What's even in the same ballpark of yeah. putting in that much time and getting that good at Well, something? the interesting thing with that is like, Time will tell also, you know what I mean? It's I like, guess. it's we are kind of like know. in this pop culture, but it is a little bit. Yeah. Musically. Um, I mean, it's, you can't really even say anymore. Morrissey is like mm-hmm. kind of up there, you know, James yeah. Brown, yeah. Uh, you know, Stevie Wonder, Prince, yeah. the Holy Trinity of, of Stevie, Prince and James. Yeah. MJ, they're, they're all biting dust. It's brutal. Yeah. The last like two years has just been brutal with either guys dying or, Legacy uh, ruin, yeah, le- yeah, yeah, just like, the controversies and stuff. It's just yeah. like a such a bummer. It just feels it very much proper for the time. Yeah, that like while we have this political situation, we have our musical icons like just getting picked off one yeah. by one by their own doing mostly. And then I, I was saying like Stevie Wonder, I know he's going in for a surgery. I'm like, oh, no. protect Stevie at all I costs. Know. Put him in an oxygen bubble. <laughs> Whatever you got to do, like. He's all we got. He's exactly. our last living like saint, basically. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are kind of the musical, maybe not influences, but just. Yeah. The just best. the Mount Rushmore. I listen to a lot of, um, Sam Cooke too. And, and a lot of Donny oh. Hathaway. Definitely. I mean, in those stories, I mean, if I were to do a movie or anything like the Donny Hathaway story, like Sam Cooke, these guys, like their lives were just like incredible. Just like, I mean, tortured. like tortured and Crazy. beautiful and, and art and flowers in the concrete. And like, it's amazing, but, but we got to wrap this up. So this la- the last question, if people come by the show. Top five boom boxes. Boom boxes. JVCM 90 is number one for sure. That's the one that's on the LL Cool J cover. Most iconic radio. It's also one of the loudest. Looks the best. Sounds the best. Built super tough and heavy. Um, you got to put the disco light up there just yeah. for pure showmanship. <laughs> and it's a plastic piece of shit radio, but yeah. it lights up and looks great. And the fact it's still working, you have it in perfect order. Yeah, like it's still it. running. Um there's a San- Sanyo made really great radios. They made the Big Ben, which has this huge subwoofer kind of in the middle at an angle that's really great cool. Great graphics. And then they made another one. I think it's called the 920, which is just like a silver, just a really great looking late 80s radio. And um, that's one of my favorites. The Sharp Turntable, the VZ2000. There's, yeah. It's actually not in the show, but I have a couple of them. That's a really cool one. It plays a record upright. And you can actually still find those, you know, if you look, if you want to spend a couple hundred bucks. And then the last one is Sharp, the 777 with the four speakers on the bottom across across the bottom, which a lot of people have seen. Those are just loud and they're just awesome. There's just buttons and knobs everywhere and it's just the best. I mean, they're all really great. I, I would have a tough time picking only five, but off the top. No, it was great. It was great. And it was great to hear Thundercat and Budgie and yourself. Shout and out Dan- to the DJs, Dante Ross. Every, Dante Ross, everyone playing on that. And, it, uh, and, and yeah, and the exhibit is up. <coughs> if, if you're listening to this, uh, up for another month in Los Angeles, come by and visit. Yeah. Tell them to turn it up. Yeah. In there. All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks thank for having you. me. DJ Ross one heavyweight NTS. Hey, you are listening to brave new views. With heavyweight gallery.